Welcome to the Diabetes What to Know podcast, where we talk to diabetes experts about how to live a long, healthy life with diabetes. We have a very special episode for you tonight with certified diabetes care and education specialist, Melinda Marinuk. Melinda is going to be answering questions that people in our wonderful texting program, Diabetes on the Go, have sent to us. We have a ton of questions, so we're gonna to try to get to as many as we can today. Melinda, thanks so much for being here with us tonight. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks, Ansley. So I'd like to start off with a question we got from a few people, which is what is the best diet for diabetes? Probably a question you get asked a lot as a diabetes dietitian. What would you say to someone who's curious about that? Yeah, it's such a common question and not one with an easy answer because partly it depends on what's right for you. But let me give you a couple of examples. We know that there are many different eating patterns and I prefer to talk about eating patterns than, than diet. And the ones that are most effective all have a few things in common. They have a lot of fruits and vegetables as part of it, a lot of whole grains, a lot of whole foods, not processed foods, um, seafood, lean meats, nuts, plant-based fats. So those are, that's the kind of the base for a healthy diet or a best diet. And the eating patterns that best match that and also show in the research that they're most effective for people with diabetes would be the Mediterranean style diet, which, as you know, is has a lot of uh, vegetables and fruits apart as part of it and seafood and whole grains and olive oil and nuts. And then a second pattern that's also been very strong in research and effective is a vegetarian diet. And it doesn't matter if it's uh, uh, vegan, meaning no animal foods whatsoever, or uh, plant-based, meaning that you can also have uh, milk and dairy and eggs, uh, uh, cheese along with it. And then the third uh, eating pattern that the American Diabetes Association acknowledges is very effective for many people for whom it's a good match is a lower or a low carbohydrate eating pattern. So those are three examples of eating patterns that all have some similar things in common, but also shown in the research of being very effective for people with type two diabetes. So I guess the question is, as someone is thinking about, you know, which one is a good fit for me, should a person be thinking about like, what are my preferences? Like, could I imagine sticking with a vegetarian diet? Absolutely. Because if it doesn't match the way you usually eat or want to eat, telling someone who really enjoys eating a lot of meat and seafood and poultry to start a vegetarian diet, no, that's not going to work. Um, but also giving that person confidence who does want to follow a plant-based eating style to know that even though it might be a little bit higher in carbohydrate, the amount of fiber that's in it uh, really helps balance it out and it's a healthy eating style. So yes, just as you asked Ansley, starting with preferences, how you enjoy eating and matching the eating pattern that is uh, best for you based on what you really enjoy and your preferences. So someone asked, how many carbs should I have each day? Also a very common question. What are the general recommendations for how many carbs people with diabetes should be eating each day? I will say, and this is a, a preface for many of the answers, um, these are going to be guidelines that I give you to probably to many of the questions that you ask me. Ideally, if you have access to a certified diabetes care and education specialist or a registered dietitian, these are questions that are great to sort of focus on your own individual uh, response and answers and how 
that question might be tailored for you. So in general, for females between 30 and 45 grams of carbohydrate per meal, and for men between 45 and 60 grams of carbohydrate per meal, not per day, um, as a general guide. Now, that's going to vary a little bit. Uh, it's going to vary based on your blood sugars, your type of medicine that you're on, but that's a starting point for many people. So that person also mentioned in their text message that they were trying to keep track of how many carbs they were eating. So do you recommend that people with type 2 track carbs? Yeah, so it depends. And I, I find myself thinking that the answer, it depends, uh, is uh, the answer many times for some of these food questions because we're all in different circumstances. Now, the idea about tracking, I would say absolutely track. If you're starting a new diet, a new eating style, if you're starting new medications, if you have a change in something in your lifestyle, if you're exercising more, you really do want to track and see how um, the carbohydrates uh, are affecting your blood sugar. But in general, if things are going smoothly, if your blood glucose numbers are in target, if you're not having any unexplained highs or lows in terms of your blood sugar, there's really no need to track. So you should sort of get a baseline, get a better understanding of how different foods and carbohydrates affect your blood sugar. And once you have that knowledge, you can back off in terms of writing everything down or, or even measuring everything. Next question, someone asked, do you recommend eating low-carb meals for better glucose levels? And that's such a hot topic and a popular topic, and you're going to get a number of different answers. But truly, the research shows that for people who want to eat a lower-carb diet, and there's a big variation in what is meant by low-carb, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment if you like, but in general, yes, lower-carbohydrate diets are effective in helping reduce overall blood sugar and improving A1C. Now, just for perspective, typically the American public and people with diabetes eat about 45% of their calories from carbohydrate. Okay, not sure exactly what that means. That means that's the average intake of carbohydrate. So that, that's getting carbohydrate from fruits and vegetables and grains. Now, people with diabetes is recommended to have about that amount or maybe a little bit less. So if your blood sugars are consistently running high or your A1C is high, a good place to start is overall reducing that, maybe to 40% of your calories from carbohydrate, maybe even as low as 35% of your calories from carbohydrate. And that can be calculated and determined in concert with your physician or your dietitian. However, bringing it much lower than that is where it can be risky. And there can be some side effects about having a very low carbohydrate diet, or as you hear about the keto diet, uh, bringing the carbohydrate levels so low that you also run the risk of hypoglycemia, especially if you're taking certain medicines. So quick answer is yes, there are benefits definitely to lower carbohydrate uh, meal plans. Uh, but not necessarily going too low. And carbohydrate, as you might recall, is the, our most important source of fuel. It's the gas in our car. It's what really makes our engines, our bodies run. We've got to have some carbohydrate. So another person asks, how necessary is it to eat a meal if you're not hungry? Do we have to eat regular meals consistently? 
So it depends on whether or not you're taking a fixed amount of insulin. So if you take insulin before each meal and you don't adjust the amount, your prescription says you need to take, for example, five units of, of a fast acting insulin every meal, then you really do have to eat every meal to match that insulin or your blood sugar may go too low. If you're not taking a medication that is going to trigger hypoglycemia, uh, say, such as metformin, for example, skipping a meal really isn't going to be a problem. Um, your, your diabetes is going to be fine. Uh, perhaps uh, you'll feel a little bit hungry. The risk of sometimes skipping meals, skipping breakfast is that you think you're saving calories. You can often overeat at the next meal. You wanted, you don't want to get yourself in a pattern of eating a lot and then eating very little. But in general, the answer is based on the type of medicine that you take. And if you're on a fixed dose of insulin versus a flexible dose, meaning that you match the amount of insulin you take to the amount of carbohydrate you anticipate eating, um, then you have a little bit more flexibility about skipping the meals. So that leads me to another question, kind of along those similar lines. This person asks, what is your opinion on fasting? Is it a good idea for people with diabetes? For that, we want to clarify what's meant by fasting. And today, most people are really thinking about or hearing about what is referred to as time-restricted eating, or TRE. And time-restricted eating is limiting that window of time during which you eat. And it's actually proving to be, showing to be, a really effective way of not only limiting calories, but also having a beneficial effect on overall glucose control. And what do I mean by that? So if you're a person that gets up in the morning at 7 a.m. and has breakfast and then you're eating lunch and maybe you're nibbling throughout the day and you have a snack and then you're having dinner and then after dinner you're having a snack and then perhaps another snack while you're watching TV before you go to bed, the time that you're eating could be between 7 in the morning and 11, 11.30 at night. And by closing that window to a 12-hour eating window, only eating between 7 and 7 or 6 and 6 or whatever, or even narrower window, a 10-hour window of eating, um, there really does seem to be some increasing evidence that that is of benefit to people with type 2 diabetes. So this is something that the American Diabetes Association has recently acknowledged in their latest standards of medical care update. Still a lot of research to be done. It's not something that we're saying to people, go out and you must do this, but it is an option for those that feel like, wow, you know, I really do have this kind of nibbling and eating all day, and it's a way to help reduce that eating window. Um, and so, yes, there may be definitely a benefit to time-restricted eating for many people. Okay, Melinda, quite a few people asked, why does my blood sugar go up in the morning even when I don't eat anything? What would you say to them? Yeah, it can be so frustrating because you go to bed at night and their blood sugar could be in the target range and you wake up and you think like, I wasn't sleepwalking, I didn't eat something in the middle of the night and yet it's higher than your target goal. And in the morning, your target goal should be between say, maybe 80 and 130. And so you wonder, what, what did I do? What's happening? The most common cause for that is that 
I call it your wake up hormones, your hormones that sort of surge early in the morning at three, four, five a.m. to sort of get your body revved up to ready to wake up. And those hormones actually release glucose and cause a rise in the blood sugar, also known as the dawn phenomenon. So for many people, that rise in blood sugar is not due to something they did, but do the natural uh, biological processes in your body that just also help you wake up and prepare for the day. Now, what does that mean you can do about it? Because you, you know, aren't going to eat less at dinner the night before. You can't control those morning surges. But if you are someone that has a significant spike in the morning, there may be an adjustment to the type of medicine that you're on or the amount of medicine that you're on that will help mitigate and minimize that blood sugar rise in the morning. So lots of people had questions about checking in pairs. So I'd love it if you could give us an overview of what checking in pairs is and why it can be helpful. Checking in pairs is a way to help answer some questions that you are wondering about in terms of your own actions and what certain foods, for example, do to your blood sugar. And it's a concept where you uh, start with the question, for example, does one breakfast make my blood sugar go higher than another breakfast? Or when I eat ice cream uh, after a certain dinner, does my blood sugar rise really high or is it okay? So trying to uh, get actual data to answer some of the questions that you might have about how your diabetes is doing. And you begin with uh, taking a, a, doing a blood sugar check and seeing what that number is. And then you can literally set a timer Two hours later, after you have eaten uh, your snack, your meal, whatever, in two hours, you will have reached ideally or usually the peak that your blood sugar is going to go up. And we expect it to go up. We want it to go up. We just don't want it to go up much more than 180. So post-meal blood sugar is about 180. And then it will come down. So you're checking before you're eating. Two hours later, you're going to check that it again, and that's the concept of pairs. You're going to write that number down, and then you're going to be looking at two things. You're going to be looking to see how high did it go? Did it exceed the target of 180? And it may or it may not. But the other thing I think is very interesting to notice is, is the second number more than 50 points above the first? So if you started at 100 when you before the meal, did you go up to about 150? We're not looking for a, a, a difference of more than about 50 points. Now, it would be great if our blood sugars were always in tight target range, but it would not be fair to someone to say, okay, you're at 160 before your meal. That means you really can't eat anything because your blood sugar can't go above 80. No, that's not realistic. We want to look at some other things to mitigate that blood sugar, but you want to look for that change to not be more than 50 points. So we expect you from that 160 to go up a little bit over 200. And then if that happens several times in a row, we're going to be looking at, hmm, how do we change what we're eating, what we're exercising, the, the medicines that we're taking to get those all those numbers back in range. Does that make sense? It completely does. And it, and really, as I hear you explain it, I'm realizing, you know, it, it really does help us see like, oh, this meal is good for my diabetes. This meal, maybe not as good of a choice, but the, the pairs aspect of it, if I check two hours after I have lunch and I see it's 200, I might really say, oh my gosh, this, this meal is terrible for me. But if I had checked before the meal and saw that maybe my blood sugar was at 160, 
that would give me some more information that there are other things going on besides the meal. And maybe I need to talk to my doctor about adjusting some medications. It's not enough to just make a, an evaluation based on that one number after the meal, because you have no idea what it was before. So checking in pairs can have provide really useful information. So we had several people ask, what are good ideas for snacks that won't raise my blood sugar? Ah, oh, snacks that won't raise. So let's just think about that for a minute, because, you know, when you think about three categories of food, carbohydrates, so that's your grains and fruits and um, uh, vegetables and uh, milk, sugars, sweets, the carbohydrates will definitely raise the blood sugar. Protein and fat will have minimal effect. So I think quickly that the low carb, low calorie vegetables, such as green beans and cucumbers and tomatoes and carrots and celery, those are really easy, quick wins for a low calorie, low carb snack. And then pairing it with something that doesn't have much carbohydrate in it with a hummus or guacamole that's mainly uh, a fat or a little bit of protein, dipping it in. There we have a snack that will really not um, raise your blood sugar much. Other snacks that won't raise your blood sugar much are protein-based snacks like a hard-boiled egg or a little carton of cottage cheese, uh, a, a cheese stick, a low-fat cheese stick, or a rolled-up piece of turkey or chicken, something like that. Very little effect. So foods that have very low carbohydrate or low in calories will have minimal effect. So another person asked if they should be keeping track of their numbers in a logbook. What would you say to them? Using a logbook can be really helpful for you if you are a person like me that likes to th see things in paper. Now, a lot of meters, um, you know, it's going to collect all that information and all that data for you, and you can put it on a computer, you can see the spreadsheet. Um, I'm pretty computer savvy, but I still like to keep a paper calendar. I like to see in front of me those numbers. So you have to ask yourself, do you want to rely on the information that's in the meter to, to look at on the computer screen, or is it more helpful for you to see paper? So follow-up question to that, if we are tracking our numbers, whether it's through our meter or with a physical logbook, are there certain patterns we should be looking for? Patterns, that's the key word. You want to look for patterns. And if you see, for example, writing, uh, you, you check your blood sugar and it's 192, you don't go, oh my gosh, uh, I'm way high. This is a problem. I need to do something about it immediately. No, you need to see if the next day at the same time, it's still above target. And the next day you want to see like three days in a row, checking blood sugar at a similar time. If there is a pattern, then you talk to your doctor, your healthcare provider and say, you know, I've been noticing I'm high every day after lunch. Perhaps I need to either reduce the amount of food in the lunch or change the medication, whatever, but don't make a change based on one reading. Looking at a pattern is really, really important. So one person asked, is there anything you can do when you have Dawn syndrome? We talked a little bit about morning blood sugar earlier. What about Dawn syndrome? Yeah. So when your blood sugar does uh, go high in the morning before you wake up, there's not much you're going to be doing about it food-wise, exercise-wise. I mean, if you are a morning person want to get up and take a walk in the morning, some people really do like morning exercise before they eat. That's not me. Um, and in general, we don't recommend it that much for people with diabetes because it could dip quickly. Um, it generally is going to be an adjustment in the medication. It might mean you need a medication at night before you go to bed that will balance out the spike in the blood sugar in the morning. But again, 
if you just see one or two highs in the morning, you don't necessarily have dawn phenomenon. You want to see that it's high consistently um, for many mornings in a row and then talk with your healthcare provider about it. So another person asked, why do the numbers go up when we're nervous? When we're nervous, when we're stressed, when we're anxious, those are all reactions to, to the uh, hormone of adrenaline and epinephrine that get released, that sort of fight or flight hormone, the response of getting us ready for action, similar to those hormones that are released in a, a dawn phenomenon, getting us ready to wake up in the morning. But the, that release of hormones also pushes the blood sugar up. So stress is uh, often the side effect of a variety of kinds of stresses will be uh, a rise in blood sugar. Melinda, someone asked, are mangoes okay to eat? Great question. What would you say to them? Ah, mangoes. What a juicy, yummy fruit. And yes, they are high in natural carbohydrate as fruit sugars are, but also a great source of vitamin C, folate, and copper. And yes, you can eat mangoes. It's all about the quantity. So about a half a cup of cubed mangoes is about 15 grams of carbohydrate. So as long as you work it into your meal plan, that'll work. I might just add, I recently made a salad with chopped mangoes, chopped avocados, which don't have carbohydrate, chopped tomatoes, which don't have carbohydrate, some cilantro, uh, some chopped red onion, a squeeze of lime juice, and a little olive oil, and it makes a wonderful salad. And the high carbohydrates in the mangoes are minimized by all the other ingredients, and it makes a wonderful, juicy, yummy summer salad. So think about that too. Oh, that sounds delicious. I guess that question about mangoes leads me to ask, what about fruit in general? I know a lot of people feel like fruit is bad for people with diabetes. Is that true? They do. I hear so many times, oh, you can't eat bananas because you have diabetes or fill in the blank. Uh, but fruit is a wonderful source of carbohydrate and we need carbohydrate as our main fuel source. It's really about the portion size, the quantity. Certain fruits such as berries, uh, raspberries, blueberries, strawberries, which are really plentiful in the summer, you can have more of about a cup of them for 15 grams of carbohydrate versus other fruits that are a little bit more concentrated in their sugar, like mangoes or bananas, where the serving size for 15 grams of carbohydrate is going to be about a half a cup, a little bit less. So all fruits are good, but recognize and learn what the carbohydrate impact is for you and find a portion size that will work. The other thing I wanted to say about fruit really quickly is when you can pair it with a fat or a protein, it also minimizes the carbohydrate spike. So putting a little peanut butter on the banana or on the apple slice or dipping um, another piece of fruit in a little yogurt, a little a Greek yogurt, that the combination of carbohydrate with the protein and fat will help minimize the blood sugar spike from the fruit. And figuring out how fruit impacts your blood sugar is a perfect opportunity for checking in pairs as well. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. So one of my favorite questions we got from our Diabetes on the Go members was, if you don't like green veggies, what should we eat instead? I love that question. What would you say? Boy, we've had it drilled into us that you have to eat your greens, right? But there are lots, first of all, lots of other vegetables that are not green. So first of all, I would say go for the carrots and tomatoes and uh, 
beets and, you know, cauliflower, a variety of others. But if you're really asking, I don't like any vegetables, well, the next answer would be recognizing that most of those similar nutrients are in fruits. And so having a variety of fruit in the diet would be good. If you're truly not a fruit and vegetable eater almost at all, I would be looking into having a multivitamin, multi-mineral and, and vitamin supplement um, and talk with your doctor and healthcare provider about it because fruits and vegetables do provide so many nutrients in addition to the fiber that are really important. And if you're just not having any of those, you want to look at how to get an alternate source. So one person wrote us and asked, what's your opinion on artificial sweeteners? And is a natural sweetener like stevia a better choice? Two good questions there. So really the best choice is um, no sweeteners at all. And what by that, I mean, a lot of the sweeteners that we, we get are in the products that we drink. So whether it's in diet soda or adding sweeteners to our coffee or tea, you know, first of all, if possible to wean yourself completely off it, that would be the ideal. Drinking plain water, seltzer, that would be the ideal. That said, I recognize that a lot of people have become accustomed to sweeter things and want an alternative. And so I stand by the American Diabetes Association recommendations that any of the sweeteners in moderation are really okay. Um, yes, stevia is a plant-based, more natural sweetener, but I'm not going to recommend that over or instead of others, I think some of the other sweeteners are more affordable. And so that's a factor for some people or more available. So um, try them. It is generally recommended that you use a, a mix of them. And it's not all of your sweeteners be just of one kind, you know, have a little of one, a little bit of the other. So I recommend use less, um, have water, seltzer, use a variety, and also be on the lookout for any sweetener, a sugar alcohol that ends in O-S-E. And those letters signify sugar alcohol. And for many people, when you have too much of them, they're often in hard candies um, and, and certain products, you might experience uh, some stomach rumbling, a little diarrhea. Uh, those often don't sit too well in your stomach when you have uh, too many of them. So be aware of that. So speaking of drinks, one person asked, are sugar-free energy drinks okay? No calories or carbs. What are your thoughts on that? That's an interesting question because if that person was sitting in front of me, my first question back might be, why do you want to drink a sugar-free energy drink? Because if you're having an energy drink, you're probably, you know, being really active and you want to replace some of the electrolytes. Sugar-free energy drinks are going to have more sodium, potassium, magnesium, things that you lose in sweat. And chances are, if you are being really active, you need some more calories because your blood sugar is going to drop. So my first question would be, maybe you need an energy drink with some calories in it if you're super active. However, if you really don't want to have um, any calories for whatever reason, um, there's no harm to them. They are often done with artificial sweeteners to give it a taste. And I would have the same cautions that I would say about uh, that I was that I would say about regular uh, artificially or naturally sweetened beverages. You know, whether it's using stevia, um, to just do it in moderation. So one person asked us, "I'm in an assisted living home where meals are served with little input from residents. How can I deal with it other than not eating it?" 
That's a really interesting question. My, uh, I have family members that were recently in assisted living facilities, and I would begin, if you haven't already done this, by reaching out to the director of food service for the assisted living service and say, hey, maybe can we have a little residence council to give you input on the meals? We love what you're doing, but we have some suggestions. Of course, you are the customers. Um, so they would probably love to hear from you. The other thing that often is misunderstood is, you know, you might be served a piece of cake, for example, and you think like, oh my gosh, I can't have this. Why do you, you know, put this in front of me? Well, nothing for people with diabetes is completely off limits. You learn how to have a small portion. And so many assisted living facilities and other res residential places have chosen to treat everybody equally in terms of a general diet and suggest that the patrons, that the guests have the amount of the food that's served that's right for them. That said, that can be really hard. And so you might just want to be very clear to say, if cake is served or sweets or something that you really are trying to avoid, please just don't put it on my tray or please don't offer it to me. Just the way they would have to follow those guidelines if you truly had a food allergy and couldn't be served something with seafood or peanuts or whatever. So I would say speak up, try to get input because that's a great idea. Um, and then recognize that small amounts of almost any food is acceptable. You may be over worrying about some things. And then thirdly, uh, make a suggestion that certain foods just be taken off your tray or your service if that's possible. Melinda, thank you so much for joining us tonight. As always, you have shared so much fantastic information and answered all of our questions. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We will be back with a new episode in a few weeks. Until then, please stay safe and take good care. Good night.